Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. Ephesians, chapter 4. By the way, one thing I want to add about Andrew Brown, uh, he will be starting April 2nd. That'll be his first day on the job, so we're almost to February. It takes a little time to you know, find a house and move and for him to kind of break away from his current position. Uh, so April 2nd, we look for Andrew to begin. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. Well, um, <clears throat> this past Friday, as most of you know, uh, was Inauguration Day. A new president of the United States was inaugurated. And um, there are some people who are ecstatic about that and some people who are kind of in despair about that. And one thing that we can all agree on is that there seems to be an incredible divide in our nation uh, about our current political situation and our current president. We're divided into red states and blue states and there seems to be almost an unprecedented kind of bitter hostility that's developed between these two groups. Now that alone actually isn't anything too different, I don't think. I mean, throughout the history of our country, uh, the different parties are kind of at odds with each other. I mean, that's kind of how it's supposed to work, really. Um, But what seems to be different in this particular situation is that 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 division, that hostility has crept into the church. I've certainly never seen in my lifetime the church as divided over politics as it is now. And when I say the church, I mean the the evangelical church, broadly speaking. And this is something that's been noted by um, our media and the world in general. Just as an example, here are some headlines here, NPR from a few weeks ago. Trump election revealed fractures among diverse evangelical community. New York Times, Donald Trump reveals evangelical rifts that could shape politics for years. Christianity Today magazine, after Trump, should evangelicals part ways? You know, over and over again, we're seeing this idea that as Christians, we're, there's rifts, there's fractures, we're divided. Should we split up somehow? The writer of that Christianity Today article, Mark Galley, said this, there is a significant divide among evangelical Christians of all colors and stripes. We look at one another and ask, how could you, as an evangelical, possibly support your candidate? And some of us look at those who might not agree with us politically and say, how can you even be a Christian and believe the things that you do and vote for the people that you do and hold the positions that you do? It just seems like there's a climate of suspicion and distrust and disillusionment in the church based largely on politics. Now you might ask, why are you talking about that? I thought the church isn't supposed to talk about politics. Well, I'm here to tell you, I'm not gonna take sides here on, on this issue, um, but the reason that we're addressing it is because we're in the midst of a Q&A sermon series, which is something we do here at New Life every year, year and a half, and one of the questions submitted was, how can we find unity in a divisive political culture? And so that's the question 
that we're dealing with today. Um, we got two sermons in the can from the last two Sundays. Uh, if you want to hear those, you can go on the website. We've got a few more to go, and the Lifeline will be a list of all those questions if you're interested in the questions that we've been seeking to answer. But today, Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 is our text. I just can't think of a better text to address uh, this current political situation we find ourselves in. Uh, the book of Ephesians is written to the church in Ephesus, and Ephesus um, was a church that had very different groups of people in it. It was a church full of Jews and Gentiles, two groups from very different backgrounds, very different cultures, very different histories, very different spiritual religious beliefs, and yet there they were in one community having to get along with each other. And you can imagine that there were difficulties and tensions, and I would say the tensions between Jew and Gentile are every bit as real, were every bit as real, as the tensions that exist today uh, between conservatives and liberals, Republicans and Democrats, however you want to characterize it. But um, Paul gives us some wise words here that we need to listen to very, very carefully in our current political climate and over the next four years. So let's stand for the reading of God's word, Ephesians 4. 1 through 6. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. Lord, would you please, by your Spirit, bless the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. I want to say before I go any further that... I really don't want this to be a sermon that kind of rags on politics as if politics in itself is a bad thing. I think it's good that God's people follow the news and pay attention to politics and have strong political opinions and even run for political office. I mean, those are things that Christians ought to do. But it does seem to be the case that politics becomes the occasion for uh, fierce division among Christians. And a guy named Jacques Ellul from many years ago wrote this about politics. Politics is the church's worst problem. It is her constant temptation, the occasion of her greatest disasters, the trap continually set for her by the prince of the world. So we don't want to blame politics in itself, but it it seems that politics has been this occasion uh, for even brothers and sisters in Christ to set themselves against each other And so that's what we're going to be considering today. So just two points that I want to give you based on this text. And the first thing we see here is this, that unity in the body among Christians has been accomplished through the gospel. Unity is a, it's a, it's a, it's what is the case for the people of God, whether we see it or not or agree with it or not. It is there. So let's look here in the text. I'll show you what I mean. Um, What does Paul say here uh, in verse 4? There is one body. 
and one spirit. There is. It doesn't say work toward unity. It doesn't say try to create one body. It doesn't say strive for unity. It says there is one body. That unity exists. And you'll see this emphasis over verses 4 through 6. The word one is stated actually seven times. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one body, one spirit, one hope. There's an emphasis here on an objective unity that is established by the gospel. So here's how it works. that There is one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has come into this world to lay down his life, to shed blood for sins, and to be resurrected from the dead. And when you place your faith in that one Lord, there is one Holy Spirit who then places you in one body signified by one baptism so that you then come into relationship with the one God and are made sons and daughters of the one Father. That, that's the gospel. That's basically the gospel in a nutshell there in verses four through six. And so the implication of this is this. Is if that has happened to you, that is you have placed faith in Jesus and you now are united to the Father, and that has happened to me, I have placed faith in Jesus and by virtue of that have been united to the Father. That means you and I have been united to the same one Father, which can only mean that you and I not only belong to the Father, but we belong to each other. We belong to each other. We are in union with each other just as much as we are in union with the Father. And so John MacArthur says it like this, believers all belong to the same Lord and are thus one with each other. Therefore, anything that denies our oneness with each other denies our oneness with Him. You see how important, how essential the unity of the body of believers is in the scriptures and to God. Now I know what you're saying, that doesn't make any sense to me because when I look at the church, all I see is disunity. I see all these denominations, I see all these theological viewpoints, and I see all these political opinions. All I see is division. Well, that's true, but think of it this way. Let's say there's a family, a father, uh, or let's say a husband, wife, son, and daughter. And let's say the husband lives in Chicago, um, the wife lives in L.A., the son lives in London, and the daughter lives in Beijing. Okay? They're, they're separated by many, many miles. But would we say in that situation that somehow a family does not exist there? Would we deny that... that that there is a family there? Would we say that their separation geographically somehow renders asunder the family? No. The father is still the father of the son. The son is still the brother of his sister. The father is still married to the wife. Those relationships still exist, even though outwardly it doesn't really seem like it. What we might say is they're a family, but they're not acting like it. And they ought to find a way to get together more. But the fact that they're separated doesn't mean they're not one as a family. And the church is a lot like that. We do seem to be separated in a lot of ways, but what we're being told here in Ephesians 4 is there is just one body, not many bodies, not many spirits, not many baptisms, not many lords and many fathers, just one. And if you're a Christian, you're united to that one father. 
in unity. So that's, that's important, but, but it's not just unity that is important in this passage because what we also see is a measure of diversity as well. And so here's something that's very profoundly true about the Christian God. God is a unity in diversity. He's a diversity in unity. It's both when it comes to the Christian God. He's unified and diverse at the same time, and we see that most profoundly displayed in the Trinity. So look at the Trinity here in this passage. Um, Look at verse 4, one spirit. Verse 5, one Lord, referring to Jesus. Verse 6, one Father, but all three are one God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three distinct persons who exist as one God. That's what separates us, distinguishes us as Christians from religions and cults throughout the world. We're Trinitarian, which presents to us this God who is a unity and diversity. So, you know, it's possible to have too much unity, actually. Too much unity just means conformity. It means sameness. It, 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 um, it excises all variety. And, and that's, that's, a, that's a bad thing. <laughs> um, some of you know I was in China a couple months ago, and one thing I noticed in China is that many of the women are just dressed up to the hilt, I mean, they all look like they're going to a dance or to some formal of some sort. They're all just so nicely dressed. And I asked somebody there in China why that was, and she said, well, under communism over years past, they were used to being told to dress in just one particular way. Everybody used to dress the same. And now that they have a little more freedom, they're taking full advantage of it and expressing their individuality in the way they dress. So there can be too much oneness, too much sameness through unity. But see, the God of the Bible is not just one. He's three also, so he's diverse. And that means in the church, there is a place for diversity. Diversity of race, diversity of culture, diversity of economic standing, and diversity of political view. The church ought to be a place where diversity exists and is celebrated and encouraged. But while unity can lead to an overemphasis on sameness, diversity can also lead to an overemphasis on individual expression that can lead to kind of a a chaos where everybody just does what is right in his own eyes and there's nothing that holds all the diversity together. See, it's unity and diversity. Don't separate the two. We're diverse, but there is a glue that holds us together as Christians. There's a glue that holds the diversity together. What is that glue? What is it that holds us together? Friends, it is not a commitment to some political platform. It is not a commitment to some politician. It is not devotion to some president. That is not how the Christian church is unified. We are unified around the gospel. We're unified around Jesus Christ. That loyalty to Jesus trumps all other loyalties. No pun intended. Couldn't think of a better word to use. (laughs) 
Our loyalty to Jesus trumps all other loyalties. And for the church of Jesus Christ to be divided over politics ought to be just as absurd and unthinkable as the persons of the Godhead being divided up. That's how ridiculous that is. And John Stott says it like this, the unity of the church is as indestructible as the unity of God himself. It's no more possible to split the church than it is possible to split the Godhead. For the church of Jesus Christ to be divided over politics should appear to us to be unacceptable. So if our fundamental loyalty is to Jesus, the teaching of the word and the gospel, that's gonna make us as a church a very peculiar people. That's gonna make us a people that don't fit so snugly into left or right, Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal. That means that as Christians who are interested in submitting their entire lives to the whole counsel of God, what that means is we're going to defend the rights of the unborn and we're going to defend the rights of the poor. Both. That means we're going to be a people who oppose all forms of racism and oppression and we're also going to oppose any altering of the biblical view of marriage. We're gonna oppose gay marriage and we're gonna oppose racism. We're gonna do, do both. That means we're gonna be a, a people who welcome the immigrant, the foreigner, the sojourner with open arms and we're also gonna declare unashamedly that there's only one way to the Father and it is through Jesus Christ alone. We're gonna say, we're gonna do both of those and so my, my question to you, friends, is when you think about your political convictions, how are they formed? Are they formed by the political party that you favor? Are they formed by the politician that you admire the most? Or are they formed by the whole counsel of God from Genesis to Revelation? If, if that is where you're submitting your convictions, friends, you're going to be a peculiar people, and that's exactly the way God wants us to be as a church in this world. And that means, too, that as Christians, we, we look at the world and we, we see that the most important contribution to the common good of our world is not a social program, but the making of disciples. That's the best way to benefit the world. Talk about the gospel, bring people to faith, disciple them, walk with them, and make them mature Christians. The most notorious enemy that we have as Christians is not the other party, not the political candidate we don't like. Your most notorious enemy is the devil himself. That's your enemy. That means the most significant event that happens at any given time is not an act of Congress, but what is taking place in this room right now. The gathering of God's people to worship the risen Christ every Sunday. The most significant thing going on on earth right now in this room and in every other place that preaches the gospel and lives for Jesus. It means the most powerful political statement, friends, is not who won the election, but that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. The most powerful thing that you can say the most impactful thing that you can say and believe and devote yourself to. That's what we're unified around and that's a unity that has been established by God through the gospel. 
Now the second point is this. Even though unity is established, accomplished by the gospel, what the scriptures go on to say is that it must be maintained, however, by God's people. So it might be a little bit hard to understand how do we maintain something that is already existing? Or we might say, how can you maintain something that doesn't already exist? The fact that we're commanding to maintain it means that it's already there. And so if you look at verse 3, you can see what Paul says. We should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Again, don't, it's not saying create unity, strive for unity. Unity's there. Maintain it. That's your responsibility and my responsibility as believers in Christ. And not only maintain it, but be eager to do it. Do you see that at the start of verse 3? It should be a passion for you. You should be eager, excited, motivated to maintain this unity. This is so essentially important, friends. There's an old Puritan, Thomas Manton, that said this, divisions in the church always breed atheism in the world. People see a divided church and they think, why do, why do I need your Jesus if you guys can't get along? I see the whole world not getting along. I don't want to go to another organization that can't get along. You show me that you guys can get along and I might think about your Savior. So how does this happen? Well, the directions are given to us here in verses 1 and 2. Very practical directions here for us about how we maintain this unity. Verse 1, as a prisoner of the Lord, Paul says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Walk in a manner. When you think of that metaphor, walk, I mean, walk is just the most common thing that, that, that we do. If we're able to walk, what we do is we walk every day. We, we, we walk. We don't even think about it. It's common. It's regular. It's routine. And so what Paul is saying here is as you walk through life day after day after day, you should be reflecting on how your walk is worthy of God's call on you as a Christian. So that means all parts of your life fall under this direction, and that includes your political convictions. Your political convictions are not set aside from your Christian faith. No, your political convictions come under your Christian faith. In particular, how you express them to other people. And so Paul goes on now to give us these very clear directions. First of all, how do we maintain unity? Through humility. Verse 2, with all humility. Very interesting word because in this time, in this culture, humility was not a virtue. Uh, this word for humility in the Greek was never used in a positive way because in that age it was just, you know, get and assert and put yourself forward. And then into that culture comes Jesus Christ, the humble one, the one who humbled himself and became obedient even to death, even to death on a cross. And we see in Jesus this humility. And so Paul says this is the way God's people ought to be. You ought to be humble. You know, friends, I think most of our political wrangling and hostility and arguments are rooted mostly in pride. We want to be right. We want people to look at us and our opinions and our brilliant observations. We don't want to humble ourselves and admit that maybe we're wrong. Maybe we didn't quite have that right. But a humble person is willing to do that. A humble person says, you know, I misread that. I'm wrong. I'm sorry. A humble person says, you know, I never really understood your position that well, but I think I do now. I'm sorry for some of the things I said. 
I was wrong. Have you ever done that in a political discussion to anybody? I was wrong. That's what humble people do. The humble person is one who listens, not always interrupting, not always talking. A person who wants to learn. A person who will not criticize another point of view until you can understand that view in such a way and articulate that view in such a way that your opponent will say, yep, you got it. That's what I believe. That's what I think. Don't criticize another view until you can do that. Because if you're not willing to do that, you're criticizing something the other person doesn't believe. But a humble person listens, learns. That's one way to maintain unity. The second thing is gentleness. Paul lists here in verse 2. With all humility and gentleness. Now gentleness, friends, does not mean weakness, nor does it mean that you don't have an opinion. It doesn't mean you're a doormat. It doesn't mean you keep your mouth shut all the time. That's not what it means. I want to be clear. I'm saying we ought to be well-read people who are aware and able to converse on political issues. I think that's a good thing. But the issue is how do we do that? And that's where gentleness comes into play. Gentleness is one who is not loud, not boisterous. Uh, One who is characterized by submissiveness. One whose tone is soft, kind. One who's not harsh, not blunt. A soft answer turns away wrath, the Proverbs say. That's an expression of gentleness. How much wrath and hostility could be avoided if we disciplined ourselves to give a soft answer, gentleness. And the third thing here is patience. Again, also in verse two, eager to maintain, no, excuse me, verse two, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. I'm kind of putting those together. I I think they're they're connected. This is um, a slowness to retaliate, particularly with irritating people. That's patience. You, You want to lash out, but you hold your tongue. The patient person is the one who is slow to hit the reply button in Facebook or email or whatever. A patient person is one who might even formulate a reply and go to bed and sleep on it and get up the next morning and look at it and ask yourself, is that really what I want to say? That's what a patient, patient person does. A patient person doesn't just look at a one-minute video clip and then paint that whole position with a broad brush and then go off firing criticisms and insults and angry retorts. The patient person doesn't take just one little sliver of an entire conversation. The patient person goes and looks at the whole conversation to get context. The patient person educates himself or herself so that he or she is ready to speak in an educated way. And then the last thing mentioned here in verse 2 is that we bear with one another in love. And so here's my question, friends. As the world observes brothers and sisters in Christ talking about politics with each other, supporting your candidate or one or another, if a non-Christian would observe the things you say and the way you've said them, would they say there's a person filled with love? Would they say that? 
What did Jesus say? John 13, 35, here's how people will know that you belong to me when you love one another. It's the most powerful, apologetic way to make a case for the gospel is for brothers and sisters in Christ to love one another. Francis Schaeffer says this, love and the unity it attests to is the mark Christ gave Christians to wear before the world. Only with this mark may the world know that Christians are indeed Christians and that Jesus was sent by the Father. Some of you know who Philip Yancey is, um, very uh, popular Christian writer, and he wrote an article sometime after the election where he worked through some of these things, and he told here a story about um, uh, an email that he received from somebody commenting on the current political situation, and I just thought it was so well written and captures r- really well what Ephesians 4 is saying and what I'm trying to communicate here. So I'm just going to read part of this to you. Um, <clears throat> the person says, Being a Christian is hard. Throughout the last few days, I've thought about how much easier it is for me to be part of a political cause than it is for me to be a Christian. As a political party member, I can vent and debate, mock, and obfuscate others' policies. As a Christian, I must learn to listen. I must embrace and include. While the political part of me seeks revenge, the Christian in me must pray for the welfare of the city, our country, and the world. The claims of Christ demand that I seek the things that make for peace. I can't mock those who voted for the other candidate. I don't get to paint them with a wide brush of ugly words. That's not allowed. Like me, they are beggars of grace and the one from whose hand we have equally received will not allow me to stand close while my heart is far away. Has your heart grown far away from your brothers and sisters in Christ because of politics? You need to draw near. You have a God who drew near to you. He had a lot more to be offended about in your view toward him than you have about the views of people you don't agree with. God drew near to you, gave his son for you, so you need to draw near. To brothers and sisters in Christ? Is, is there, are there people you need to be reconciled with? Are there apologies that need to be made? Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. This needs, I'm convinced, this needs to be a verse we return to frequently in the next four years. Let this guide us and direct us so that as the world looks at new life, it will know, indeed it's true, the Father sent the Son for us. Let's pray. Father, help us, God. We, we are a weak and needy people. Lord, we, we want to stand for the truth. We want to articulate what's right. And sometimes it's those passions to do what's right that leads us to these tense debates. Help us, God, as we balance this, as we seek to relate to one another in humility, gentleness, and patience. And Father, keep, keep our minds full of the fact that our ultimate allegiance is to you, Jesus, the one who died and has risen, who is king, who reigns, and who will come again and make everything right. And Lord, we long for that to happen. 
and pray these things in your name. Amen.